20, verses 1 through 7, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Millennium. The word comes from the prefix mil, which uh, doesn't mean million, strangely enough, but it actually stands for a thousand And that's where the word comes from. You won't find the word millennium in your Bible. Don't worry about that. Uh, We're going to talk about labels this morning. And uh, I would recommend to you avoid labels. If somebody asks you, uh, are you a premillennialist? Say, well, I believe that uh, Jesus is going to take the church to himself before uh, the millennium. If they they ask you, are you a pre-tribulationalist? I believe Jesus is going to take the church to himself before the tribulation. Too often, labels carry with them uh, other things in people's minds. So say, I believe what the Bible teaches. You're safe there. If you can defend it from the Bible. So, I said we're talking about the millennium. Don't worry, you won't find the word there. But we did see the phrase, how many times a thousand years? How many times was it there? Anybody count? One more. Five. Five times. And uh, there's no reason not to take it literally. It's interesting that God stresses it a thousand years, and so it's a literal thousand years. Remember we said when we study the book of Revelation, as any other book, unless God says as or like, then take it literally. So, I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, this has not happened yet, will, in a future day, I believe very soon, come back and physically rule on the earth for a thousand years. Does anybody here believe that? A few. Okay, well, praise the Lord. Uh, We talked a little bit about the millennium before when we touched on these verses, and I read some passages from the Old Testament that describe the millennium. I'd like to talk uh, this morning more about the fact that it is a literal thousand years, and that it is really the fulfillment of literal promises, actually covenants, with the nation of Israel. And so we're going to use that word covenant this morning. Uh, for you people, particularly you young people, may not know what a covenant is. It's very simple. It's just a binding agreement between two parties, or two or more parties. In the Bible, it's generally between God and someone. And in particular, generally, it's between God and the nation of Israel. God doesn't make covenants with the church. But he does with the nation of Israel. And he did with a few individuals. There are uh, two kinds of covenants. One conditional 
one unconditional. A conditional covenant would mean, uh, I agree to do this if you do that. That's conditional. You understand that? In other words, if you do something, you'll, you'll probably get some benefit. If you don't do it, then you don't get the benefit. But then there are unconditional covenants, and God has made both kinds. The unconditional, of course, is where God in, in the Bible says, I will do this, period. No conditions. Now, I bring this up because there is a system of theology called amillennialism. How many people have heard of that before? Okay. Now, it has the word millennium in it, but it has a prefix ah, which means no millennium. And those who believe in amillennialism believe that there will no, be no literal thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. They tend to say that we are in the millennium right now and that Christ is ruling in our hearts. We're going to talk about the problems with that system as we go through this. But I thought I'd uh, just give you a background. A lot, of, a lot of people know the phrase, they know what it means, but they don't know how that comes about. And so I'm going to explain it. <clears throat> it really comes from a, a system of theology, often called covenant theology, Reformed theology. Uh, and it's interesting that the word covenant occurs in the description of this system of theology because uh, though they believe in covenants, they don't believe in the literal covenants with the nation of Israel per se. That is to be fulfilled in a future time. The covenants in covenant theology really are not in the Bible. There are three of them. The first one is called the covenant of redemption, which they teach was a covenant made between the persons of the Godhead before creation, where the Father agreed to offer salvation or redemption, the Son agreed to accomplish it, and the Spirit agreed to apply it. And those are the co that's the first covenant of covenant theology. Now, let me say, before I go further, <clears throat> there are many... Uh, things that are true that are taught in covenant theology. And we believe many of them. Certainly the sovereignty of God. Certainly the election of uh, members of the church. We've taught it from the pulpit before. <clears throat> I'll give you some of the extremes that we don't agree with in a minute. Uh, the second covenant is called the covenant of works. And uh, they teach that it was the first covenant made with Adam and Eve. Because God said, if you uh, obey me, then things will be fine. If you disobey, then it won't be so good. And it's carried over, in fact, into uh, application under the law as well. And the third covenant, and, and I would <clears throat> think that a covenant theologian would say, and they're thinking this is the most important covenant, is the covenant of grace. It's a covenant they teach that was made by God with the elect, um, to apply salvation to the elect. And that's where, if carried to an extreme, wrong teaching comes out of covenant theology. Because as they begin to, uh, how should I say it, major on that third covenant, it's almost as if God becomes obsessed with the elect. It's an obsession. And uh, <clears throat> it becomes the tail wagging the dog. This is true of any theological system. You cannot make one doctrine support the whole structure. 
If you do, you're going to get into trouble. And as God becomes preoccupied with the elect, He therefore has no interest in those who will not be saved. And therefore, they teach that Jesus did not die for those who will not be saved. Jesus only died for the elect. Now, the name for that doctrine is limited atonement. And you know we don't teach that here. And you know the Bible doesn't teach it. I can give you one verse. 1 John 2.2 2. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. You're, I'm sure you're wondering, where are we going with this? Well, I'll tell you, because you'll see how it leads to amillennialism. Uh, before I get there, let me talk about another system of teaching. It's called dispensationalism. Now, let me tell you plainly. If you were to ask me, are you dispensationalist? I would say no. I don't like labels. If you were to ask me, do I believe in the literal fulfillment of the covenants with the nation of Israel? I'd say yes. I believe that. I believe it's taught in the Bible. But just as in covenant theology, there are extremes that a dispensationalist would go to. That's why I don't like to take labels. Extreme dispensationalists go so far as to teach there's such a separation between the church and Israel that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have no application for us today. They are meant only for the nation of Israel. Now, that's wrong, you see, but that's the extreme that they can go to. But um, one of the things that uh, they teach is that the covenants that God made with the nation of Israel are literal and will be fulfilled in a coming day. Now, let me say that uh, not all amillennialists are covenant theologians or reformed theologians. And not everyone who believes that the covenants with the nation of Israel are going to be fulfilled literally are dispensationalists. So, be careful uh, about running into the uh, pitfall that people do by putting labels on, on others. But I'm using these two systems to illustrate uh, an approach to understanding God's relationship with the nation of Israel and in particular, His covenants. The point is, it's interesting, the starting point that I, I make, if I start with a system like that and emphasize uh, certain doctrines until they are emphasized out of proportion and begin to look at all the doctrines of the Bible in light of that doctrine or subset of doctrines, eventually I'm going to run into trouble. For example, limited atonement or application of the Gospels only to the nation of Israel. All millennialists, or let me put it, covenant theologians become all millennialists because they teach that Israel had their chance, they blew it, and all of the promises in the Old Testament now apply to the church. Uh, that's a very uh, problematic position. If you read much of the prophets, you've got a ton of scripture now to deal with that are very literal, that talk about a literal king, a literal land, literal blessings, and they have to be, all be spiritualized away. They have to be somehow uh, changed in order to apply to the church. In fact, in this passage just right here, in Revelation, if I were to believe that uh, the millennium is not literal, but we're in the millennium right now, then I have to believe, first of all, that Satan is bound right now. That's a problem. 
I have to believe that Jesus Christ is reigning right now on the earth. Well, certainly Jesus reigns in the hearts of Christians, but this earth right now, as he plainly taught, the God of this age, the prince of this world, is the devil. And, of course, uh, the thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years. It means some indefinite time, then, if I hold to that. As well as uh, dispensing with a lot of Old Testament Scripture. Let's, what I'd like to do now, I'm going to begin by looking at the covenant. We've, talk, we've talked about the covenants that God made with the nation of Israel. I'd like to look at them. We've mentioned them. We looked at a few passages. I'd like you to see them for yourself and uh, see just how literal they are. And then we'll talk about how a covenant theologian or an all-millennialist would make the mistake of turning to the New Testament and pushing Israel aside and, and trying to apply those scriptures to the church. So let's look first of all, Genesis 12. Now, many people who hold to uh, what they would call dispensationalism number the covenants. Again, I don't like that because there's overlap. And they name them. That's okay as long as you know what you're referring to. So just for uh, ease, I will use the names that uh, they use. But as you'll see, there's really overlap between the, the covenants. So uh, I'm going to take the easiest ones to understand first. Certainly, the, the two easiest to understand uh, covenants are the promise of land. Are you with me? The promise of land to the nation of Israel. A particular land in present Israel, in fact. And the second is the promise of a king. Okay? Let's look at those. First of the land, Genesis 12 and uh, verse 7. The Lord is talking to Abram here. <clears throat> then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. This is after Abram had stalled after leaving Ur of the Chaldees and finally picked up again and made it to the land of Canaan. And once he got there, God said, this land where you are right now, Canaan, he says plainly that I will give it uh, to, you, to your descendants, this land. Okay, that's the first uh, occurrence of this promise. We'll call it the Palestinian covenant. Look over at chapter 13. God reiterates it. It says in verse 15, For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants. And now he says, forever. Okay? This is pretty clear. He's talking to Abram. He, he mentions his descendants. And he says he's going to give it to them forever. And there's no if. Okay? No condition. This is an unconditional promise. For the sake of time, I'll just mention uh, Genesis 17, 7 through 8. He says it again, without condition. Now, on this first covenant, we're going to give you a little exercise in the Minor Prophets. It's the only one. Turn to Joel. Right after the Major Prophets. Right after Hosea. And before Amos. Abraham has died now. Isaac's gone. Jacob's gone. And God is speaking here much later. 
It says in Joel chapter 3, Verse 16, the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever in Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will acquit them of blood guilt whom I had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Lots of words in there. God is talking literally to the nation of Israel, about the nation of Israel, Zion, Jerusalem, Judah. Next book, Amos. And this is not all, but we can look at just about every prophet in the Old Testament and find a reiteration of this promise. Next book is Amos. I made it easy for you. Right turn, next book. Chapter 9. <coughs> Verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. It's pretty clear. Right? Talking about forever. Talking about the nation of Israel. Talking about the land. Okay, well, <clears throat> just note Zephaniah 3, 16 through 20. Read it later. Zechariah 8, 1 through 8. Very clear reiterations of this promise, this covenant, as he calls it, with the nation of Israel, that he will give them this land forever. The word forever is throughout these uh, passages. Okay? With me so far? Now, we're going to come back to the dealings with Abraham because actually there are several uh, aspects of the covenant with Abraham. But I want to look at the other simple one first, which is a king. And then actually begins with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We've got some easy books for you on this one now. This is when David is uh, recognizing that he has a palace. He has a, a beautiful uh, building with uh, cedar on the walls. And here the Lord's tabernacle is made out of, it's basically a tent. And David wants to build a permanent building for the Lord. And the Lord answers him this way. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Who's he talking about there primarily? Very good. That's right. Solomon. 
But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, Solomon died. So did God lie? Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. You'll recognize this one. Solomon's been long dead. And God's speaking here again. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Who's that talking about? Good guess. Yeah, it's Jesus. Okay. Okay, make a left turn to Psalms. Psalm 89. <clears throat> Verse 3. God is speaking. I have made a covenant with my chosen. There's the word covenant. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. He reiterates it again in verse 34. Notice the language that God uses here to stress that he means this literally and will not change. Verse 34, my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, can God speak any more strongly than that? I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. If we turn to the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, you can just write this down, 31 through 33, where the angel is talking about um, the Lord Jesus and his birth, says that he will sit upon the throne of David again. Okay. Notice in these the, the idea that it's a covenant that he makes with the nation of Israel. He stresses that. They're literal promises and they are forever. Okay, now, we'll turn back and we'll finish up with Abraham. <clears throat> turn back to Genesis because there are other aspects to the covenant that God made with him. Genesis, chapter 12. We'll read verse uh, 1 to get the context here. The Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth I'll be blessed. Now, some like to say, first of all, well, this is a conditional promise. Well, it may be uh, at the very outset here. Uh, the, the condition, of course, is getting out of your country and going to the land. It's really a moot point because he moved out of his country and went to the land. 
So whether it is or not is not important. He's done it. And to confirm it, God reiterates the promise to him. And we'll see that. Um, look over to chapter 22. Notice there the promise uh, to Abraham, by the way. There were specific promises in the covenant that God made with Abraham that were peculiar to him. He would be a father of nations, for example. That's already been fulfilled, right? He would be blessed, and he was. He was physically prosperous as an individual. God kept that part of it. But it's the other part about the nations being blessed that's interesting. And that's where we come in. Not into the covenant, but into the blessing. The covenant was made with Abraham. God didn't say, I'm making the covenant with the nations. He says, part of the covenant is that in you, the, the nations of the world will be blessed. Are you with me on that? Okay. <clears throat> well, he says it again here in 22, <clears throat> verses 17 and 18. In blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. There's that personal promise to Abraham. Lots of descendants. Remember how remarkable this is. This man's 90 years old. Okay? That's why it's so remarkable. As the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You see no ifs, by the way, in these passages, and you won't find any. It's an unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham and with his seed, later uh, Isaac and Jacob in the nation of Israel. Okay. Now, how do we come into all this? And this is where covenant theologians and all millennialists, all millennialists make their mistake. God uses this passage in Galatians 3 to talk about the importance of faith. In fact, in Romans 3 and 4, uh, in Galatians 3, he is talking about the difference between law and uh, law-keeping and salvation by faith. And he quotes this passage. In fact, why don't we look there rather than me just talking about it. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. The whole, in the whole chapter here, the context is justification by faith versus keeping the law. Let me just say in a nutshell what God does in the New Testament with Abraham and the church. The key verse out of Genesis that God uses for the church is actually chapter 15, verse 6. And what does that say? Anybody know? Abraham believed God. That's right. Now, that is not part of the covenant with Abraham. That's very important. That verse is applied to us. But that is not part. God did not say, now, if you believe me, I will declare you a righteous man. He never said that. God made a covenant with him, and in there were a lot of very difficult-to-believe promises. <laughs> Not to mention the fact he's 90 years old. He's going to have uh, progeny like the sands of the sea. And he's going to, his descendants are going to own this land, which right now is occupied by lots of people. Okay? 
But Abraham believed God. And when he believed God, that's right there is when it says God counted it as righteousness to him. Okay? Now that is the one application from the life of Abraham that God applies to us today. It is not part of the covenant. And it by no means says that God transferred the covenant to us. Okay? You with me? All right? Now, here in Galatians 3, he, he mentions that, in fact. Look at um, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Uh-oh. So there it is. All the descendants of Abraham have been wiped aside and now we in the church are now the children of Abraham. Is that what that's saying? Yes? No. Just as in Romans 3 and 4. He's saying we're spiritual descendants of Abraham and that we act like him. He believed God and he was justified. He was reckoned righteous. So we who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we believe God, we are declared righteous on the basis of the work of the cross. He uses similar phrases in, in uh, Romans 3. Nowhere does God say, and so Israel is laid aside and the church now inherits all the uh, promises that were made to the nation of Israel. You're not going to find that anywhere. In fact, the amazing thing is, when you read books by amillennialists where they just do incredible damage to the verses in the Old Testament, you never see God do that. Out of all, probably thousands of verses in the Old Testament, not once in the New Testament will you find God saying something like, in talking about the church, you know, as it is written, the lamb, the lion will lay down with the lamb. Or as it is written, they shall inherit the land and apply it to the church. Never, not once. And yet you'll see it in, in all millennial commentaries, books full of it. That's pretty serious business. It's saying God made a promise, but now he's changed it. And that's wrong. The only connection, the only relationship, tie, if you will, we have to the covenant of God is in that phrase where he said, in your seed, singular, by the way, he makes a big deal about it here in chapter 3, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the tie-in right there. And... Nobody knew at the time. Praise God. Now we know what he meant by that. His seed is who? Jesus Christ. In fact, you think the words of the Bible are important. The letter. So, God doesn't say things like. Uh, as it says in the, Old, in the Old Testament, the lion shall eat straw like an ox. And so in the church, um, you have people who were formerly very violent sinners, now peaceful and easy to get along with. You laugh, but that's what the, the sort of things they do. God never takes any of those. Why? Because they're reserved for the nation of Israel. He made them to the nation of Israel and he's going to fulfill them to the nation of Israel. Just as he said. Okay, the final uh, covenant, if you will, it's called the New Covenant, is Jeremiah 31. 
just before Ezekiel. Okay, uh, Jeremiah 31. Actually, it's very short. It's only uh, four verses. We'll begin in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, notice this, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's pretty clear, huh? Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And that covenant, by the way, often called the Mosaic covenant, was the conditional covenant that God made with them. And that was, if you keep the law... Everything will be fine. And of course, we know what they did. And he says that. My covenant, which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Has this covenant been fulfilled yet? Right? That's exactly right. In fact, there's a similar phrase at the end of the book of Romans uh, where he says the same thing, all Israel shall be saved. This great revival among the nation of Israel has not taken place yet. In fact, right now, as he teaches in Romans 9-11, through they're blinded, their hearts are hardened. They're back in the land, <clears throat> but they're back in an unbelieving state. This day is yet to come. That's right. <clears throat> in fact, look over at Ezekiel now. And we'll see this repeated. You have to make a left turn there. Oh, pardon me, right turn. Ezekiel 37. Now he's going to repeat this new covenant in a broader context. And in fact, it's the millennium. 21, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. There's the land promise. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. What could be clearer? And one king shall be king over them. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. There's the king promise. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them. There's, there's the Lord Jesus in his millennial reign. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. There's the, the new covenant part we saw back in Jeremiah. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwell. Boy, this is pretty clear. And they shall dwell there, they their children and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people." The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. We haven't read all of them. We're just, we're just hitting some highlights here. <clears throat> now, 
God quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. And in that context, uh, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a covenant theologian will turn you to Hebrews 8 and say, look, right there, there it is. In the New Testament, and the church is the one that God is speaking to now. And nothing will be further from the truth. The book is written to Jews, professing Jews. The whole book is talking about Jewish things. And in the book, as you know, God is stressing how Christ is better. Right? From beginning to end. And in that chapter, he's comparing the Lord Jesus Christ with Moses. And he says in there that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant than Moses was. I think that's true. The covenant Moses was the mediator of was keep these commandments and everything will be okay. <laughs> and the flesh is weak. Nobody can do it. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is the mediator of the new covenant. And the point in that passage, read it, is not that the new covenant has come. In fact, he doesn't say that. But he's saying Jesus is better because he's the one that makes the new covenant real. Do you understand? The emphasis is on the Lord Jesus Christ and that he's better. And that's it. And you can see why. Because this new covenant that he's the mediator of, the law is written on their hearts. Alright? Now, the center of all this, and the thing that ties really everything together, in fact, the thing that makes all the covenants with Israel possible, is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. They could not be in a land forever with the Lord in a close relationship, being blessed, unless their sins had been forgiven. Do you understand? Now, that wasn't stated to Abraham. He, di he didn't say, uh, in order to bring you into the land, I'm going to have to do something to take care of your sins. It was indicated, certainly, in the animal sacrifices and so on. And we can use the New Testament to look back and see clearly that that's true. But, let's put it this way. God laid the foundation for the millennium. That is, Israel being in the land with God as their God and they are his people with the Lord Jesus ruling over them, prospering abundantly, longevity, people living hundreds of years. It was all started, the basis was laid when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. You understand? That's, that's the if that did not happen, he could not have kept those promises because they're forever. And sooner or later, they have to go to hell. So the basis, the foundation for all of the covenants really is the cross of Christ. Now, unbeknownst to them or anybody else, God looked ahead and the promises he had made to the nation of Israel, knowing that he was going to give his son as the basis. But he knew more than that. Because when he gave his son as the payment, not just for the sins of Israel, but for the whole world, he said, I'm still going to hold off on Israel, on those covenants I've made. And now that my son has died... I'm going to bring in the whole world into the good of what he has done. You understand? And the gospel is preached today and you and I believe. But we don't become part of the nation of Israel. We don't inherit uh, the blessings of the covenants that God made with Abraham and the others. On the, on the other hand, because we have trusted in the same, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have blessings too. But they're not the same. Ephesians 1 begins this way. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual... Spiritual! Got that? Blessings. In heavenly places. In Christ. Okay? So, they're not the same as the blessings that God is literally going to fulfill for the nation of Israel in a coming day. They are blessings, but they're different. But the blessings flow from the same source. The cross is at the center again, and we, we shouldn't be surprised, should we? It's the center of everything. And so if you want to think about it that way, the two parallel lines meet at the cross. God's covenants with the nation of Israel, which shall one day be fulfilled, and the one that's going to sit on the throne, not surprisingly, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Okay? But the, the, and that's why it's called a mystery. The church, which has been hidden in God, has the same starting point, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's where we intersect. But the blessings are not the same. We do not replace Israel in the sense of pushing aside all of those uh, promises, literal promises in the Old Testament. The lion is going to lay down with the lamb, literally. Okay? A child is literally going to be able to put his hand over the, the uh, den of a viper and not have to worry about it. The, the land is literally just going to burst with abundance. And we shouldn't be surprised if the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling somewhere, huh? how can it be otherwise? It's like a foretaste of heaven. It's not as good as heaven, but it's going to be great. <clears throat> and we'll finish with really God's final word on this whole thing about Israel in Romans chapter 11. Romans 9 through 11 is a section of Romans which is devoted to God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Paul begins with his personal burden. In fact, he, goes so, so, he says it so strongly. He says, I, I would be willing myself to be cut off. That's incredible that he would say something. But it shows his, his love of his own people. Now, it's interesting that when he in, introduces the nation of Israel in, in this section, he says, to whom belong? And he has a list of things there in chapter 9. And one of them is the covenants. You with me? Covenants are with the nation of Israel. He says, to whom belong the covenants? If you remember Ephesians 2, in talking about the Gentiles, who were far from God, it said, we were strangers to the covenants. We have nothing to do with those covenants. They're strictly for the nation of Israel. And so, taking that theme up, he, he under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks about Israel. So what about Israel? That's basically the question he's, he's answering here. You know? Are they gone forever? Did they blow it and God is done with them? What about all that stuff that he promised them? Well, he finishes, as you know, in chapter 11 with the illustration of a tree. And he talks about a natural tree, which was the nation of Israel. And how the, he grafted out the natural branches and put in unnatural branches, which is the Gentiles. And he said, just as surely... As the unnatural branches were grafted, grafted in, much more should the natural ones be put back in. Okay? Now, that sounds logical. But then, in case you're wondering what he means, he says it plainly at the end of the section here in Romans 11, just finishing the discussion of the tree. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, 
that a hardening in part has happened to Israel until, that's a big word, it's not going to go on forever, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And only God knows when that comes. But it looks like it's any day now. And God will remove the church. You see, right now, it's the Gentiles that are uh, receiving the bulk of the blessing, if you will, from God. The gospel is preached, and it's mostly Gentiles who believe. Very rarely does a Jew trust in Christ because they're blinded, their hearts are hardened. Praise God for Noad's testimony. It shows the, the grace of God that he hasn't totally laid them aside. It has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, and here he says it again, all Israel will be saved. Is that clear or what? As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And that day is yet to come. And no wonder he, uh, he ends, verse 29, by the way, he says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay? God didn't lie. Back in the end of verse 28, he says, They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Not that Abraham's such a big deal, but God shows him to make the covenant with. And once he's done that, God cannot lie. He's on record as having made these, these covenants with them. And so he must fulfill them. Or he's a liar. No wonder Paul ends this way. Verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And we can look at the Bible now and we can see that God had much greater things in mind than blessing this little obscure nation with uh, lots of uh, grapes and uh, peace from their enemies. But better than that, to save people from their sins. And now the work is done. We are receiving the blessings right now in this life as believers, but the greatest is yet to come when we go to be with the Lord. But in, through, in the midst of all of it, he still has not forgotten that obscure little nation. And he will keep his words, his words so many of them, to that nation and it's all summed up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. As we think about these great things that you have done and are doing and will do, we're not surprised that once again we come back to the center, to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. How we thank you for him, how we thank you for his finished work. We think of the wonderful chapter we heard this morning, Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid up upon him the iniquity of us all. Oh, Lord, thank you that that means me. Thank you that means everyone here. If there's anyone here who has not come to the cross and trusted that wonderful Lamb of God, may they do it today. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.